Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you want to listen live in the central Indiana area, you can hear us on 93.5 FM and 107.5 FM. Let's welcome back to the show from ESPN.com, Stephen Holder. It, it seemed like that they threw a bunch of names in the hat and just kind of came out with a starting lineup on that offensive line on Thursday night in a short week against Denver. Um, and obviously, you can look at it as getting even worse. But somebody had brought up inside our lounge via YouTube Live if a change needs to be made at center, even beyond the fact that Ryan Kelly got dinged up in that game. Is that a change with a lack of injury in mind, Stephen? You think that Chris Ballard and Frank Reich would change, would would go with at this point in the season? Well, I'll start with like a, an easier subject, and and I'll just take on the uh, the change in and of itself. They made okay. a good decision because they had to do something, right? They they couldn't just. They couldn't just keep the status quo. So I applaud them on the one hand for doing something. It wasn't the right the combination, granted. But uh, they, it, it, it suggests that they understand the urgency. So I'm, I'm happy to see that. Now they got to keep working on it and figure it out. As for Ryan Kelly, that's a tough one. And this is where these matters get really delicate. So here you have a, have a guy on a $50, $60 million contract. Uh, he's, he's a veteran. I, I don't know. It's it's probably a long shot, I would think, that they would make that change. I, I do think that Ryan Kelly has really struggled. There's no doubt about it. Now, what I can't necessarily comment on, because he got hurt and we, we don't have enough to go on, what what I wonder is is whether those struggles were a product of of maybe the right guard being a weak link in previous games. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying it's possible. And there's clearly some sort of disconnect between him and Matt Ryan. And I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know enough about, about the center and quarterback relationship and, and the, the communication because I've never done it. So I'm not going to comment necessarily on the specifics of what's wrong, but there's clearly a disconnect there. And they, they both have admitted to that. So you know, if they got the, the communication squared away and they find some sort of consistency at right tackle, excuse me, right guard, then maybe Ryan Kelly can stabilize. Uh, if those two things don't happen, I don't know what we're dealing with. And, and I don't know if it's Ryan Kelly or, or if it's the situation. Is, was it clear to you the other night? And I, I know that he came out via injury, but it was, was it clear to you when, when Pinter was in there? I mean, even before Kelly got injured, and it's going back to last week and, and really weeks prior, do you think that was, there was a clear separation between how the team performed along that line when he was snapping the ball and a part of the, the center position than there was prior to? Was there any clarity for you with that? Um, I, I'd have to watch the tape a little closer at, at center in particular, so I don't want to – I don't. I, it, I will say this, and, and this may be why it feels this way. The offensive line did settle in later in the game. That did happen. There's no question about it. I was – I actually saw some really productive run blocking late in the game. I mean, did you guys see that? That was unbelievable. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute, it was what's new. happening here? <laughs> well, and, I, I also I saw, saw some short passes. Like, they didn't well, – on pass plays, you know, you didn't let, mm -hmm. you know, Matt Ryan sit back there for a second and get, you know, gobbled up. You had some short pass patterns and something that I was screaming about at halftime, I wish that Frank Reich would implement. And I guess he waited until maybe overtime to do it, I guess. That was a good time. Yeah, listen, I'm not about to promise anybody that the Colts are going to suddenly be a juggernaut because of, like, 10 minutes of football, okay? But <laughs> but I'm just telling you, I saw some of the brightest moments on offense I have seen the entire season in that fourth quarter in overtime. I, and Matt Ryan, I know I'm getting off the subject here, but this guy, he drives me crazy, okay? <laughs> because <laughs> you see, you've seen it. We've all seen it, right? The fumbles, why, you know, the interceptions. Why did he go there instead of there? Right? We've seen it. And, and granted, he's under just complete, constant duress by the offensive line. But he plays so frustrating for so many, uh, for so many moments. And in the fourth quarter, man, I don't know what it is. This guy really is legitimately kind of clutch. And I know it sounds stupid. I, I almost feel stupid saying it, Right. But all I'm saying is, like, if they can stabilize their offense, this team is not terrible. They actually have a chance to be good. But I don't, I don't trust them to stabilize the offense. 
you know, for the remaining games. I just haven't seen enough consistency to sit here and tell you they can do it. But there's some talent, and they have some moments, but they're not enough. And so it's going to be up to them. Stephen Holder, the uh, ESPN.com is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Uh, no, you're right about that. And, and I have said this, uh, this offensive line's broken. It is broken, and this yeah. offense is not going to go anywhere without it. And not only does it have to raise its level of play, it has to raise it substantially here. And I don't know how you do that, regardless of where you place Matthew Pryor at this point. Would you agree? It's a problem. I mean, Pryor is is definitely a huge issue right now. I I wonder if you just honestly go back to Braden Smith at right tackle. Braden Smith has struggled, and I'm not going to pretend that he hasn't yeah. played the worst football I've ever seen him play. That is without a doubt true. However, he wasn't as bad as Matt Pryor at at left. Oh, excuse me, at right tackle. I believe Pryor gave up. Uh, I get the number. I think it was nine. Pressures, I think, uh, which is just insane <laughs> in one game. I mean, how many times did Matt Ryan throw the ball, right? I mean, well, nine of those attempts, none of those dropbacks, Fire gave up a pressure on Matt Ryan. That's incredible, incredibly bad. So you got to get him out of there. He cannot play on the edge right now. He's killing you. Now, maybe, maybe Pryor is an option at right guard. I think his best football in his career, he has played at that guard. So that might be something to consider. And obviously this will depend largely on what's going on with Kelly and what they do with Pinter and all that. But, uh, but I, I do think that's an option and we'll have to see, we'll have to see what they do there. I, I guess Will Fries uh, is an option. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what they do there at, at right guard. But I think you can't watch that tape and see how Pinter, excuse me, see how, uh, how prior played and, and just, throw him back out there on the edge. I mean, just no, no, especially by the way, especially against Jacksonville, because these guys got speed on both sides coming up this weekend. And you just can't have that. All right. By the way, too, I do want to mention this because I know Chris Ballard got a lot of giggles out of my consistent suggestion uh, of moving Quentin Nelson to left tackle. But I think we both can conclude on this. Nothing is more laughable than believing that Matthew Pryor is any sort of left tackle, right? <laughs> listen, so, I, I, I listen. You, we talked about this repeatedly all off season, and my my take on it was: look, I don't know if the guy can play left tackle. I'm willing to I'm willing to see how it goes, but I have nothing to go on, right? I was like everybody else. I'm I'm, I'm an open minded person, right? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt until you prove that you don't deserve it. Well. That lasted like five minutes. There's no question about it. Now, let me say this. Bernard Raymond, now that game on paper will go down as a game where he had four penalties, and that's going to look absolutely awful on paper. Okay? I get it. But let me tell you something. I actually think there's something there. Now, his, his holds, there were a couple that were questionable, I thought. But once he settled in, and I thought Matt Ryan made a good point, by the way. Matt Ryan said, it's, it's the kid's first start. He's on the road at mile high. It's loud as hell. I mean, just a crazy environment to have to go into. And he kind of, once he settled in, I thought he was okay. I thought he was fine. And he's coming off an injury, by the way. He's hadn't practiced that much. He had no practice last week because they only had two freaking days. So if you get this kid some time on task and get him out there and really let him develop some continuity there could be something there. Now, it's going to be hard because it's on-the-job training, and that's going to come with all the requisite mistakes. But in terms of the upside, he's got the upside. and They're not moving Quentin Nelson. It's pretty clear at this point, right? Can we agree? Uh, whether they should or shouldn't is, is not the issue. They're, they're not going to do it. It doesn't appear that that's in the plans. So Ryman, though, he is the guy I think that they should stick with, and I think he's got some potential there. I, I like the long-term potential of Ryman. Where, where, where is Dennis Kelly in all this? Uh, he's out there. That's, that's another one. I mean, I, I think they haven't had enough time really to, to kind of work him in because he, you know, kind of been coming along slowly, but I, I think they, they're at that point. Now they have this 10 day layoff. Everything should be on the table. And as far as I know, uh, he is physically able to go. 
So I think everything has to be on the table, and, and I know that they are considering all their options. I mean, look, Frank Reich might get up there and, and give us all these platitudes and, and sound you know really annoying most of the time, right? I get it. That being said, he's no idiot. He knows, okay? He knows what he's dealing with, and he knows his tail is on the line. So you, you can't worry about sparing feelings or, or upheaval and, and, you know, worried about making rash moves or any of that. You can't worry about it. And I, and I honestly think that the moves they made last week, while they were not the right moves on the offensive line, uh, it was certainly a, a shot, right? It, it showed you that they understand it's a desperate situation because, I mean, th- when have they ever done anything like that under Frank Reich? Never. But he is very, very slow to make personnel changes. They made three of them, right? So it, it tells yeah. you right there that uh, they understand the, the, the importance of this and the desperation that they're in. Why, why did they decide to go with um, Braden Smith at right guard and Pryor at right tackle? Why not Pryor at right guard and just stay with Braden Smith at right tackle? What, do, you, do you know yeah. what went and what was involved in that decision? It's a good question. I, I would have, if you would have told me there were going to be changes, I would have predicted right. that Pryor was more likely to play guard than tackle. But I, I, I can only imagine that Pryor has practiced almost exclusively at, well, has practiced definitely exclusively at tackle, you know, throughout this offseason. And I guess they didn't want to, you know, overwhelm him mentally by putting him at a completely different position. Now, Braden Smith, the same could apply, right? I mean, he's, he's been a tackle since he stepped on the field for the most part, uh, once he became a starter back in 2018. But I guess just they just maybe trust him a little more. Um, I, I'm not really sure. I, and, and it may also suggest that, that right guard, they saw it as a bigger problem. I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I, I didn't get the logic behind it, and I, I, wish, I, could, I wish I could offer more insight on that. But it, it was definitely a surprise to me. I'll say that. Yeah, it's just uh, I don't know where they came up with that conclusion. <laughs> That's really yeah. It's, it, was, it is. It's really weird for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that in jest regarding you know my consistent conversation about moving Nelson. It was more because of what is supposed to be his quality of play or his his threshold, his ceiling, if you will, of level of play combined with what he's getting paid. But listen, he's not been any good either. And especially was not any good on Thursday night. What's the issue there? Listen, man, I I can't disagree with that whatsoever, man. I have never seen Quentin Nelson play as poorly as he's played this season. Now, he was not good last year by his standards, okay? And Quentin will tell you that. But I also understand why, right? Because last year he was beat up. He had three different surgeries throughout the offseason and into the preseason, right? We know about the broken foot and all that. So I, I actually could stomach the way he played last year, and it was still better than this, right? Yeah. This is just unexplainable. I mean, I don't know him to be injured. If he is, he certainly hasn't talked about it. Uh, I, I don't know of any significant health issue with, with Quentin Nelson. I have to imagine this: the entire line is just discombobulated right now. I do think that we, we probably underestimate the impact of, of dysfunction around you, okay? And, and I'll, I'll tell you, like, Matt Ryan's a good example of it. Like, Matt Ryan has lost his damn mind right now. This guy can't even hold on to the football. <laughs> He's never done this before, and it, there's no excuse for it. But I also think it's a product of the dysfunction going on up front. Like, he's just – he's not reacting well to this absolute disaster that's going on with this offensive line – and he's just been incapable of handling it, which is not an excuse, but it's, it's at least an explanation, right? And so I think that that applies on some level to Quentin Nelson. I mean, unless Quentin Nelson has has just completely lost interest in playing football, <laughs> and I don't believe that to be the case, then there has to be some explanation for, for why his performance has, has dropped at this level and so precipitously, I, I really do attribute it to a, just the the lack of continuity and just the lack of consistent performance around him. I think he's been affected yeah. by it. 
to Stephen Holder of ESPN.com on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Uh, listen, and people are going to say, well, you're just Mr. Pessimistic, and, and I'm not. But I will tell you this. My whole thought on this offensive line and the legend of this offensive line, I think in large part, Stephen, it was built two years ago once they really got going with the quick rhythm, quick release, and the short patterns of Phillip Rivers. And we all thought this offensive line was good and on the way to being dominant. And I think that was fool's gold compared to what we saw from this group a year ago and certainly level or lack thereof of what we're seeing from this group right now. I think it was all brought on by the style of play that they adapted to regarding Phillip Rivers. And I guess I would have to ask you this to go along with it. You saw them kind of shorten up pass plays um, and routes, especially late in that game, especially into overtime and got, got some passes going. Why have they not been more adaptable knowing that Matt Ryan doesn't have a second to throw the ball and then running down the field and hoping you get separation and he can throw it down there? Why has that not so far been any sort of offensive option? Well, um, two things. Number one, all right, I'm just going to circle back real quick on the, on yeah. the offensive line uh, comment you made. So, all right, I'm not with you on that. I'm going to tell you why real quick. And this is fine. Like, we're just we're – just, we're just two guys yeah, talking. Let's cool. tell you what it is. So I think the, the zenith, the absolute zenith of this, this iteration of the offensive line, and I'm talking about Quentin Nelson, Ryan Kelly, Braden Smith. The other guys have changed, but those three guys have been consistent, right? The, the, the zenith of this iteration was actually 2019 with Jacoby Brissett. That is some of the most outstanding offensive line play I've ever seen, period. They were fantastic. And think about, the, I mean, the game in Kansas City is, is I think, the, the ultimate example of that, right? I mean, that, we talk about that game so much because it's like the last time the Colts did a, the Colts did a damn thing, right? So, anyhow, right. I, I really do think, I mean, you think about Marlon Mack that year. I mean, he, he's a good back, and I like Marlon, but Marlon was also a, he was a product of this offensive line, okay? Let me tell you. And, and they had a quarterback who was not a threat that year. And still were able to run the ball just at a ridiculous level. So, I mean, they have done it. And I, now Philip Rivers added to it, I think. He fit well because he, he definitely helps your protection because he is a guy who throws quick. So that always helps your protection. Jacoby Brissett did not throw quick, which is a whole other story. Anyway, um, to, to your point, I, I just think they've declined for whatever reason. Their play has declined. I don't think it was fool's goal. I think they screwed up, or these guys have, have just gone the other way. And I, I was talking to Chris Ballard before the game the other night. We're standing there on the field, and he's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, this I probably shouldn't repeat this because we were just kind of shooting the you-know-what. But he's like, you know, you couldn't have convinced me that, our, that this would have been our problem this year, you know, trying to block. Like, that's our problem? You know, of all the things, of all the things. And I, so I think they're just as a – they're probably just as frustrated about all this as everybody out there listening right now and probably just as stunned about it. But anyhow, to your question, I have a comment on the, the question about the, the quick throws. There's an interesting take. I have an interesting take on this, I think. Matt Ryan is not a, is not a, a quick throw guy. He's an intermediate thrower. Look at his best throws this year. Where are they? They're in the 10 to 15-yard range, in my opinion. It's not him making the quick slants or even the screens or any of that. I mean, his best stuff is when he's, you know, kind of in the five-step drop range and, and they can kind of get some depth on the routes. And then he's able – he makes those throws pretty well, particularly the ones in the middle of the field. He can make them outside too. Alec Pierce was a real big beneficiary of that the other night. So I, I guess what I'm saying is – I don't think that's his game. <laughs> and it doesn't mean you can't do it. It doesn't mean they don't do it. But uh, they, there's two things in addition to that. It's not, it's not Matt Ryan's game. And then it's also uh, the fact that the defense knows they can't protect and probably knows they've got to shorten up their routes. And so they, and Frank Wright talked about this today, they are definitely endeavoring to, to ensure that, that they take those away too. So there's, there's multiple things going on there. Uh, but Matt Ryan has to be – I think he has to adapt to the situation as well and get it out. 
Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you're looking at adapting to the situation. No, play, play that is part of it. Let me be clear. Play, play yeah. Carlin is part of it. But I'm, I'm giving you, yeah. I'm just giving you some context as to way, maybe why they aren't emphasizing it as much. You know, uh, I, I really don't know if he loves that style, and, and I'm not saying that's a good reason, but I think that's that is a reality here too. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, and, and I get what you're saying. But, Stephen, they can't live like this. I agree. I mean, they can't live. Offensively, they can't live like this. And I, I, I it was halftime in Denver, and I'm screaming. I'm going, oh, my God. And you're right. I mean, defense is recognized, and they're going to play up. But it doesn't look to me like the Colts are even trying. So it's not like the defense has to prepare to play up. They just don't have to because the Colts are doing their same old offensive thing while their quarterback gets pummeled and makes some of the most ill-advised, ridiculous passes we have seen since a year ago. Right? <laughs> yeah. I was wondering wait, since when. I was, I was leading up to that. I was <laughs> yeah, here a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's listen, it's, it's confounding. A lot of it's confounding, man. And I'm just telling you, the, the, the sad thing about all this is that they actually have found some guys here, okay? They have found some things. Alec Pierce, I am all the way in, 100%. This kid has, they say, that you know, these guys got the dog in them. This guy has the dog in him, okay? I am convinced. That I'm all the way in on this kid. Jelani Woods, I, I don't know if he's at that level, but, like, I, I think you can trust him, right? He definitely has the trust of the quarterback. Um, Mo Ali Cox is kind of getting into to things now. I mean, Michael Pittman hasn't set the world on fire, and and it hasn't really hurt them that much. I mean, they they've been they found other guys to go to. Is my point. So it's so funny. Like that's the thing we thought was going to be a complete, you know, four alarm fire for this team, and it actually isn't. And yet here we are talking about uh, the the blocking and just the the very fundamental thing of blocking. And they just can't even do it. And then, of course, you know, just the the the, the execution and the the play calling and things like that are factors as well. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Pipeline. I know it's been mostly negative in the type of conversation I presented here, but I will say this: uh, the defense has, has played well. I saw more from the defensive front last game, and really, it's been a little bit more consistent and. We saw the major reason why they felt it necessary to go out and bring in Stephon Gilmore. You can talk about, yeah. you know, Russell Wilson and being off and being awful on that Denver defense, but the playmaking ability in the crunch time when it matters is exactly why they went out and got him, and you saw that pay off significantly on Thursday night. No doubt about it. Listen, this defense is going to have to be their meal ticket right now. Until they get to a level of competency on offense, this is their meal ticket. But they're doing it. These guys have not allowed a single point in the fourth quarter or overtime this year. And, you know, we can talk about who they played and, and maybe water it down that way, but I don't care. I mean, the bottom line is when, when you need a stop, that has always been one of, the, one of the issues with this defense over the years has been can they get that final stop when they need it, right? And, and the answer has always been, well, we'll see. <laughs> you know, and this year the answer is you're damn right. And so I give them a lot of credit, and I, I think you do that with big plays. You do that with your, your big guys, your big studs making big plays, and that's what you got to have. And they're doing this without their biggest player of all on defense, Shaquille Leonard. So I give them a lot of credit. DeForest Buckner, way to show up. Stephon Gilmore, way to show up, right? Uh, Zaire Franklin, the way this guy has played, i got to tell you, he's exceeded all expectations, and maybe he's, maybe he's more of a player than, than we – thought he was right and so sometimes in these situations you learn about guys my point is this defense is what's going to keep them relevant if they're going to be relevant this year uh it, or at least for now it's going to have to come from that defense but they look up to it uh, to be honest with you and by the way special shout out to rodney thomas who i yeah. had no expectations for that kid two things he plays really fast and he is just a hell of an athlete i, I don't know anything about this guy seventh round pick None of us knew anything about him, but talk about taking an opportunity and running with it. Yeah. Yeah, he has. No doubt. Listen, there are there are good stories on this team, you know, 
and they're you know right there in the thick of things. More games so we can talk about them. (laughs) Well, and uh, part of the issue is they it's just not supposed to be this way. And I mentioned this at the start. It just seems like every week we kind of lower the bar. Well, you know it's okay because this happened. Like we, we justified the, the, the way that they played was justified because they won a game on Thursday night. Uh, and while that is true, it all matters about the win. I think we all got a chance to watch just how bad that was. And that level of play in winning is just not sustainable. It is not. And something has to change. And that starts with the offensive line. If that doesn't change, this team goes nowhere. Yeah, look, I mean, things tend to even out in the end, right? I mean, you can't defy the odds every week. And, you know, winning with a 12, winning with 12 points is very much defying the odds. So that's not going to work on any kind of, you know, systematic basis. Okay, let's be right. clear about that. Like, that's a one-off, all right? The only reason that worked is because Russell Wilson was similarly terrible. Now, the defense, I give it a lot of credit. But again, even with the best defensive performance, you are not winning 12 to 9 football games in 2022, except for that one. <laughs> so my point is, I'm with you. I agree. Uh, take the win. And I'm glad that they have been able to stay afloat while they try to figure out, you know, which way is up. But they got to figure out which way is up because this ain't going to work long term. And they know that. That's the one thing they, they won't. Maybe they, they say out loud, look, you know, there's no thing as a bad, no such thing as a bad win. I get it. I agree. Uh, but they also understand that this isn't sustainable. They know that. Hey, really quick, and then I got to run here, and I know that he's injured, dealing with a concussion, dealing with a broken nose. But at some point, we, we're going to figure out that maybe Franklin and Okereke you know, might end up being a, a better option this season because of the way the season has gone for Shaquille Leonard. Is that something we may end up be be talking about here at some point? Well, I, I think we need to find out the, the extent of of what he's dealing with with this nose. I mean, it sounds like it was really, really nasty. But I, I, what I would say is this. Uh, he needs to take all the time he needs. That's what I'd say. But that being said, when he's cleared and he's ready to roll, number one, you're not going to keep him out of the game. <laughs> number two, there's just a different level of, juice that that guy brings i I mean i i would love to see him play with this this defensive personnel he's got with stefan gilmore on the back end you know with the way they're rushing the passer right now hopefully quitty pay comes back he's dealing with that ankle uh he could miss some time we'll see but I, i would love to see Shaq Leonard play with that group, you know, because I think there's always been something missing. It's like, oh, the pass rush isn't good, or oh, they're giving up all these long passes. But if he gets back into midseason form, if that happens, uh, I really would love to see him out there. I think this group would fit him well because they've, they've got some playmaking potential, and he's the biggest playmaker of all. All right, man, I appreciate you more than you know. We'll see what happens coming up on uh, on Sunday. We're in the realm of must-wins for me again. It'd be nice maybe for them to win a game within the division. Sunday would be a nice chance to do it, huh? Nice opportunity. Yeah, hopefully it's easier on the eyes, too. <laughs> <laughs> I say this. At least it was, it was original on Thursday. I mean, if for nothing else, there was some originality in the awfulness there. Buddy, I appreciate you more than you know. See you down there on Sunday. All right. I'll see you then. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com of the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline right now, we got a lot of things to figure out. I thought we had a bit of a time and a moment here to talk some Pacers considering they're still in the preseason and, you know, really what to expect this year. One of the great guys to bring on to talk about not just the expectations but the analytics and more, the nuts and bolts of the roster. Tony East of Forbes and WTHR.com is with us right now. Tony, I mentioned this a little bit earlier last hour that you know the fan fest like yesterday when they brought that little kid out there and he ran around and scored a layup and everybody embraced him those are the types of moments that you're you're going to probably have to embrace with this pacer team this year because it's for the most part not going to be the wins people say well wait a minute when in terms of the culture i talk about how you know it's it's just the, the wins that matter they're in two different 
positions of expectations right now. And I thought yesterday was awesome to watch. And those are those moments, I think, more so than anything else, that are going to be the embraceable moments for this team moving forward through this season. Would you agree? Yeah, they're going to need a lot of moments like that because, you know, they, they even said it. The, the difference in comparison from the Pacers to the Colts is the expectations. So the wins are not as important for one team than they are from the other. Rick Carlisle called it a new era of Pacers basketball on media day. And I, I asked him straight up, what would be a successful season for you? And he said, you know, it'll be about the eye test. It won't be about the wins. It'll be about seeing those players improve every day and every week and every month and throughout the season. That's how the Pacers will assess their growth this year is, is in those moments. And those moments uh, will not necessarily lead to wins. So they're going to have to have a lot of those feel good stories. Like what we saw with Jackson, a fan jam yesterday and, that fan jam was fun. They have a more athletic team. So there were a ton of dunks and a ton of moments like that. But uh, they're, they're going to need to find a lot of those this year. Yeah, no doubt. So what you saw, and Tony East joins us in that first preseason game is they took advantage of a team that um, is trying to tank. And, you know, I know that they don't like to hear the word tank around here, but we all know the reason why these teams uh, are where they are, whether we're talking about the Pacers or where Charlotte is going to be, where Utah's positioned itself or San Antonio. These teams are looking for – uh, more than likely, a very high pick situation, again, for very good reasons, coming up in that June NBA draft. In this particular race, who do you think starts out the season in the best position? Uh, you got to think San Antonio is leading the way for the, the tank race. You know, their roster is a ton of young dudes and guys who are really unproven. They traded away DeJounte Murray this summer, and most sports books say, hey, this team's going to be the worst, but. Really, the, the race at the bottom this year, and, and you know, we just saw Scoot Henderson versus Victor Wimbanyama last week to see why there's yeah. going to be this, this race to the bottom, unlike any season maybe we've ever seen before. After the Spurs, you know, most sports books say you know, Orlando, Indiana, Utah, uh, Houston, they're all really close on how low they can get. And the way that the lottery works now for the NBA is the, the bottom three records all have the same odds at the top pick. So, it's not necessarily about being just the worst. It's, it's really that bottom three that's the sweet spot to be because you're getting the same benefit as if you were the worst. So, yeah, it looks like the Spurs will probably be the worst and, and Greg, as Greg Popovich continues to develop that team. But the Pacers right in the mix for, you know, one of those next couple spots near the bottom of the standings. And this year more than ever, they do shift into that new era. And they've, they've talked about this being, you know, a longer two-, three-year project to, to ascend back to being – a contender in this league with, with Wimbanyama and Henderson floating out there. I mean, it, it makes all the sense in the world for them to maybe end up in one of those spots, even if it will be painful at times. I said this a little bit earlier, too, and Tony East joins us, that the Pacers collectively now are, you know, they're, I, I gave an um, example of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, you're always be selling. They, they are really, <laughs> they're selling it while not saying tank, but, you know, I had Rick Carlisle on on Tuesday, and you could tell everybody starts out incredibly jovial. But this is a longer-term thing where at some point the new fresh feeling are going to wear off, and that's really going to be the time to tell how many Pacer fans actually hang in for this season because you can have moments like you did against Charlotte or moments like you did against the Knicks, for example, two really good examples of how this may end up looking this season. Do you think this fan base, they say it right now, do you think they're in this thing for the longer haul? I think that they can be for one year maybe, but the, the thing is that I think a lot of people skip over in those things is they haven't made the playoffs since 2019, right? They, they, right. they played there in the, in the bubble, excuse me, and they got swept that year even, right? So it's been a long time since they've had playoff success. And then the, the Dave Yorkerton season, they, they lose in the play-in. The following year, they don't make it. So, yeah, it was time to transition to the next era. That was the right decision. But they're not really starting from, from zero. They're starting from two years removed already from that success, right? So some fans might already feel like it's been a while. Like, we, when you talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder, you know, they, they, look, they look like this team going through this long project with all these young players and – they have a million draft picks. Oklahoma City played a playoff game more recently than the Pacers, right? They played yeah. a, a game six in the bubble two years ago. So uh, I, that's where I think it's, it's, the rubber's going to meet the road. Is I think this year specifically where Matherin's this high pick that the franchise has never seen and they're clearly transitioning, I think fans can stomach that and understand that, you know, w what the reality is of the NBA and the Pacers situation. But I don't know how much beyond that 
they'll get the graces of this being a long project, even if it might make more sense for it to be something that takes two or three years rather than just one or two. Tony East of Forbes and WTHR.com writes regarding the NBA and the Pacers on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So how close do you think the Pacers were in dealing miles to the Lakers? It, it seemed like with, with Shams had that report about a week and a half ago and, you know, all the conversation that was going on, there's really like one portion of this possible deal that the Pacers are looking for, that they want, that the Lakers are unwilling to part with, and that's a first round or another one. Do you think at some point this season that that ends up happening, especially if the Lakers um, are what I guess everybody in Southern California expects them to be on a year-in and year-out basis? Yeah, the Lakers had more motivation to do that than the Pacers at this stage to me just because, you know, they're a team that has LeBron and Anthony Davis, sure, but they have all these expectations to, to succeed and they were horrible last year, right? They didn't even make the postseason, and they're running it back with a largely similar core. It seems like they were the team that was motivated to say, okay, we can get both healed and Turner if we deal both of these picks. And the reason the Pacers are just a perfect match in a way that no other team in the league is right. Only the Pacers and San Antonio have cap space to bring in Russell Westbrook without giving up a ton of salary. Right. And only the Pacers have veterans that the, that the Lakers would want in a deal like that. The Spurs don't. So no team in the league has the Pacers combinations of useful veterans to trade and cap space to make a deal easy. And so there are very natural fits for this trade. I think that's why the Lakers were so, so often brought up and why this kept being a thing that was discussed and why the Pacers would consider it. You know, they don't, they don't care about having Russell Westbrook suit up for them. They've got Halliburton. They've given the keys to him. It was all about those unprotected first round picks. And I think that, it never really got to the point where they were both offered. I think if they were both offered, we might be talking differently about if Heald and Turner were, were on the Pacers this year. I don't know what any ultimate offers were, but it seems like both picks unprotected was never actually offered, and that's why you know we are where we are, because the Pacers never even had to have that internal discussion of what do we do if that offer is made, should we accept it, because it, I don't think it actually ever got offered from the Lakers to the Pacers. All right, so we think about that. That's still going to be floating around out there. Do you think that this offense, you think with Miles and his role, especially leading up to the trade deadline, might we see different types of deals visited uh, with this new particular role? I I guess I'd first ask what you expect from him for the first time being that, that standalone big, and then can you know that help as far as what the Pacers may get in return coming up at the trade deadline? Because I think we all understand that he's not going to be here longer term, and it's all about creating that level of value here up until February. Right, that's sort of the risk and reward the Pacers take in carrying him into the season. If they trade him to the Lakers, sure, they might get something good, but then they can't trade him somewhere else. And so that's where this first part of the season is, Uh, kind of crucial in that way in that you know he's playing with the best passer in Tyrese Halliburton he's ever had and so he'll have a lot of opportunities like you mentioned as that lone center to set some screens and pop into space and and make decisions and in the preseason so far there's been a lot of I would say robotic moments from him where he kind of just swings it around or goes right into a screen without doing anything as creative and we've seen Miles Turner be more creative than that but either way I think the Pacers will have to try to maximize him at times until the February trade deadline comes, even if it does at times hinder the development of some young guys, because that could help maximize the return they could get for him. Because yes, it's easy to say now, well, if they don't trade the Lakers, maybe they get a better deal down the line, but that, that time will run out eventually. They only have a few more months until the trade deadline this season in February. So I do think they'll have to figure out how to maximize them. I think it's going to be a lot of screen and pop or screen and roll situations with the guy like Hal Burton, who can get him the ball in advantageous situations, right? We saw Turner have 12 points in the first half against Charlotte, didn't even play in the second half, so could have had a 20-plus point game pretty easily that night. Nine rebounds against uh, against the Knicks last Friday. Like He's already showing how he can impact the stat sheet. It's going to be about putting it all together and partnering up with other players and showing what he can do as the lone center. They'll really have other teams evaluating what he can bring to them and if the Pacers can get more in a trade uh, from that. To Tony East joining us on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. When you uh, view Goga, what do you think his standing is, his position is right now with this team? certainly seems like he's the third center. Heck, when they played Charlotte last Wednesday, James Johnson was the third center. Yeah. The veteran, the 35-year-old, played, and Goga didn't even play in that game. And then last, 
last Friday in New York, Doga did play over James Johnson. I mean, his standing is certainly a, a deep reserve big heading into his fourth season. And, you know, it seems like they've never given him the, the opportunity to be in the rotation. But at the same time, there hasn't been a point in his career where you could argue he necessarily deserved a spot in the rotation, right? He was always behind both Turner and Sabonis. And now Isaiah Jackson's in the fold. And Isaiah Jackson is the exact type of player the Pacers have talked about for the last two years with that athleticism and the defense and the flexibility he offers when he's out there. So there is a play role for for Batadze right now. It's going to be Turner and Jackson in the five rotation. And right now it's Jalen Smith and Terry Taylor at the four spots. And, you know, Goga, if there's an injury, maybe he can get in there and and finally show that he's grown and improved. But right now, for the fourth year in a row, he's going to be on the outside looking in, it looks like. Yeah, that's that's the way that it looks as well. I, I you talk about you know this rotation and what you're going to see backcourt wise. What's your viewpoint of what this team has as starters and then rotationally fit in this team's backcourt, Tony? Yeah, they they're going for height and creation at the point guard spots. You know that's what something Rick Carlisle says he likes about the Tyrese Halliburton and Drew Nembard guys and T.J. McConnell, obviously much shorter. But it seems like. Out of that point guard spot, they're going to be they're hunting for passing and creation in a way that is really smart. And they, they, they got six assists from each Halliburton and McConnell last Wednesday. Nembard's had three assists in both of their preseason games. So it seems like they want those guys kind of running the show, being the engineer, and Halliburton specifically to be a scorer. And uh, the, the, the dynamic play from the two spot and even the three spot to an extent because they don't have wings has been interesting. You know, Buddy Heald's been a really effective shooter, as has Chris Duarte. Uh, so far, whereas you know Aaron Neesmith and uh, and um, excuse me, Buddy Heald have have uh, shown some off the dribble stuff as well. So they've gotten some varying play from that spot, but that's the rotation they've gone with so far. Unfortunately, Aaron Neesmith already dealing with a uh, plantar fascia issue in his foot, so he he's going to miss some time there, and they'll have to figure out who to go with at that two three hybrid spot. But they've been getting a lot of perimeter solid play from those guys you know that's a really offensive minded group Chris Duarte is an all right defender Neesmith is an all right defender but that's a really uh, five five offensive minded guys who give give you a ton of points right they scored 122 in Charlotte 114 in New York and can light it up from deep and create and and really put pressure on the rim but on the defensive end that's where that group has struggled Tyrese Halliburton couldn't keep Jalen Brunson in front of him in New York RJ Barrett was killing him so it's it's a really dynamic group that can fill, fill up the fill up the scoreboard but can't really stop anybody at this time, and they're going to have to figure out how to mesh those things together. Yeah, so Tony East with us. Jalen Smith, we saw him raise the bar when he was brought in, no doubt about that. Is, is he going to continue to do that, or what, what's your expectation for his growth within this team? Yeah, that's the burning question for him, right? And it, it was rare to see that happen like that, where a guy gets a bigger role with a new team and just completely turns it around, right? Sometimes that can be overwhelming four guys and it was from everywhere, right? He looked more mobile. His defense looked surprising. He was doing well on the glass and the standout skill was the three point shot, right? It ended up at about 37, 38% with the Pacers last year. But the reason for concern, the reason people were really interested in how he could perform this year is, you know, his first 15 or so games with the Pacers last year was on fire from three, 45, 46% almost. And then his next group of games, next 15 or so games, that was down to about 30%, right? So a lot of the question is, who, who is Jalen Smith? Where is his development? Is he actually a really reliable shooter? Is he that mobile all the time? Can he be this, uh, this offensive force that can play the four and the five? And Rick Carlisle seems to think he can play both positions because they're starting with the four this year. He's on the perimeter a little more. And so they're kind of betting on him having growth in, in every area of the game. As that shooter, as a more mobile big that can kind of be a four or five, put the ball on the floor a few times and make some plays. He's had some nice moments on the interior, even with Miles. They've had some nice passes to each other from the elbow to the block, a little more old school, honestly, uh, with that spacing in a way that's been successful. And they're saying, hey, Jalen Smith, you know, your nickname is Six, and you're skinnier, and you've got these glasses. Go guard Julius Randle, who's a bowling ball on the court, right? That's uh, that's going to be a tough matchup for him. I think he struggled with that a little bit last Friday. He'll get another chance at Randle when the Knicks are in town this Wednesday. So I think that that's where his big development's going to be is. You know, we, we've seen the mobility. We've seen that he can kind of, space out a little bit on both ends can he kind of be more burlesque can he hang with these stronger forwards who are going to run through the Pacers and have when they haven't had Sabonis out there in recent seasons that's where I think they're hoping he can develop and be more than just kind of a stretch five if he can be a dynamic player who can defend and put the ball on the floor that's the growth I think they're hoping to see from him and why they're putting him at the floor and putting him in these difficult matchups because Rick Carlisle seems to think he could be that guy but he's going to have to show it this year because last year was such a small sample of games 
You know, Rick was on the show with me last week, and he seems down with his approach. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know how you felt. I was somewhat surprised that he was down with this particular approach. But, I mean, listen, at least as of last Tuesday, he sold me. Are you surprised that, that he's cool with the direction this thing is going, being a part of a rebuild? Uh, you know, yes and no. So the uh, the things Rick Carlisle likes in te- in coaching is like the teaching aspect of it. And I so happen to think that he's a little bit better at the teaching aspect of it when it comes to teaching like sets and, and, and changing schemes within your lineups and, and things like that that are really important on successful teams, right? He was yeah. very good at coaching the Mavs when they were really good. Now that what I also think is as a teacher, you also have to teach individual skills and little things and details and angles that make players successful and can, can grow into better players. And so I think he has to do that part a lot more this year, which is still something he really enjoys and is good at and why I think he's going to have fun coaching this team, but is also different than what Rick Carlisle is known to be good at, which is being flexible with, and creative with really good teams and making them have the right lineups and the right uh, you know, scheme and situational awareness for whatever opponent they're playing. Right? He's so super good at that. It's how he got Dallas to beat Miami in the playoffs. It's how he got you know, a, a Dirk Nowitzki team to be successful and then immediately switching to a Luka Doncic team to being successful, right? He's very good at that, and that is not something he'll have to do this year, right? So it's totally different. It's totally outside of what Rick Carlisle is known to be really good at, but I still think it's something he really enjoys and can get on board yeah. with. I think he likes teaching these younger guys, setting them up for success in their career, and growing them into better players so that he can do the things he's really good at when this team grows into the next version of the good Pacers. Do you think this team wins more than 25 this season? <laughs> uh, I, I've got him at 26 or 27 when I ran through the yeah. schedule and, and pegged it out. So a little bit more, you know, it, they, they should be about the same level of team as last year is what I think, maybe a tiny bit worse. But at the same time, I think they'll have a little bit more luck in close games where they were just catastrophically bad last year, right? Like four and 25 and in close games or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but something just, grotesquely bad that even if they just get a little lucky this year, if it's Chris Duarte gets called for a foul on the buzzer beaters or the ref doesn't, you know, mess them up in a couple situations, I think they can get that to six or seven close wins, even if that's still terrible. Uh, it's better than last year. And I think that will make them incrementally a tiny bit better in the win column from last year, even if they're about the same level of team, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I, final thing too, regarding their uh, defense in the backcourt, I don't expect it to be a lot better, (laughs) but I will say this. I think that in the past we have seen guys who have just capped out, ceiling doubt at being able to do anything in the backcourt defensively. At least you may end up finding, cultivating somebody that's capable of doing it. I don't know when that might be, but you kind of knew what it was going to be in that capacity in the past. But it's something that absolutely has to get monumentally better that has dogged this team for a while, especially when you consider dealing Miles Turner in February. This, this is something that has to drastically, to me, get better. You agree? 100%. You know, for, uh, for all the praise and love Tyrese Halliburton's got this summer, most, most of it deserved, he is a pretty atrocious perimeter defender. Buddy healed for, again, same thing. He played very well offensively for this team and a breath of fresh air for the franchise since he plays in every game. He also really struggles on defense. And so even guys like Ben Matherin and Aaron Neesmith, who can be their solid perimeter defenders, even they're unproven on that end, right? They're both younger than 24, right? There's a lot for them to grow into. Chris Duarte is only in his second year. So they, they have guys and names who you could say, you know, maybe this is a guy who can keep a guard in front of him and not just be a turnstile or a matador or whatever synonym for poor defender on the perimeter you want to use. Sure. I think they have the names in the building who can be that someday. But right now, I think they project to be pretty terrible in that skill again, right? It doesn't just happen overnight where you become better on that end. And, yeah, there is something to defense that's just buying in and locking in. And you saw that in Charlotte. They were all on a string, and they kept LaMelo ball and, and some of those ball handlers in Charlotte in front all night. And then two nights later, it was just completely woeful and miserable. And I think that's where young players struggle, with that consistency, with that buy-in, and making sure it's a team defense concept where once one guy gets beat, the rest of the perimeter defense just falls apart. And so as they have all these guys who can maybe lock in individually, they're not very good team defenders. And that's where I think this group wants to grow as a unit 
keeping guys in front, sliding on a string and all that kind of stuff. And they haven't shown they can do that yet. They have other opportunities to grow, and I think they'll get get better at it, especially Matherin and Neesmith. But right now they really struggle with that, and I think that's going to be a, a big issue for this team this year. You, um, you think that was – was that a Dan Burke thing, or was that just a personnel <laughs> oh, thing? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, Dan Burke was fantastic at it. I mean, I had some players who – who came here and would talk to me and they would say like, you know, you think, you know, defense and you hear the same sort of general stuff from every coach you have, like Dan Burke was teaching these guys, some angles or some positioning right. things that they'd never heard of about like where to stand or how to stand or where to face and stuff like that. That just maybe wasn't like mine, but like, was just like, Oh wow. Okay. You know, that, that really helped them and changed them. Like Brian Bone was a rookie uh, who went from Australia. He played professionally before coming here. Like, it, it was, like, eye-opening, stunning to him when he got to the Pacers, like the way he was being told to defend and the angles to defend and things like that, and it made him better, right? He, he said it was really helpful for him. So, yeah, Dan Burke, and especially being combined with a guy like Dan McMillan, who's so focused on the details, really helped in the past with that kind of stuff. All right, Tony East, glad to have him back here, getting ready to start a Pacers season where the wins uh, will be something that probably will be few and far between. You just hope to be entertained for a while. And I know the Pacers hope that that the fan base can remain engaged. Um, what, what do you think about what they're trying to do as well with the the whole Bally Sports streaming situation that was such a disaster last year? Right. It's going to be wins and lessons this year, JMV, not wins and losses. That's how the Pacers will grow. <laughs> Bally Sports, yeah, the service is there, which is which is good, I guess, for cord cutters. Yeah. Right? Valley Sports Plus is now there. It's an option if you need it. The, the, the basic analogy I've kind of boiled it down to is like a crappy option is better than no option, sure, but that still might be a crappy option. You know, I, I get why fans are wincing at $20 a month for yeah. another streaming app that they have to add, add and manage, especially when League Pass for the entire NBA is less than $20 a month for the, for the season. But you can't watch the Pacers if you live locally on league pass they're the only team that will be blacked out in your market so i suppose an option is better than not having an option and the valley guys the valley announcing crew does a wonderful job they were uh doing their in-studio thing today got to see jeremiah johnson and chris Canary in their suit so i know they're getting prepped up for the season but uh, you know for, for the 20 dollars a month the, the hope is that there will be additional content or things beyond the games that make it for the consumer because that number does seem a little high for just pacers basketball yeah, I mean, honestly, $20 a month for me means it better have consistent nudity. You know what I mean, Tony? So, <laughs> if not, then I'll probably back away. I know what you mean. It's It can be a, a tough sell, especially with a team that outlook win-loss-wise is not great. Hey, but we're, we're glad to have you back. Thanks for hopping on here today, and uh, we'll do it again very soon, Tony. Thank you. You got it. Thanks for having me, JMV. Tony East of Forbes, Tony East of WTHR.com. Tony East covers the NBA and the Pacers.